This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get up to $55 in free postage when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for December 19th, 2014, the Why Close Guantanamo When You Can Open Havana edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura in D.C. I have Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson again, again, together in New York. Weird. Neither of them lives in New York. They're always together in New York. I don't mm, know what <laughs> We keep inviting you and you keep not coming. Maybe that's the weird part. He's you don't in... want to see us. I know. All right. On today's show. <laughs> he knows. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Mm, he's got that down. On today's show, Obama, the president, warms up U.S. relations with Cuba. Will Republicans try to stymie him? Then Jeb Bush announced this week that he's thinking of pondering whether he should consider entertaining the vague notion that he could potentially float discussing with his wife whether he could possibly suggest the proposition that he run for president. Then you're offended. You're outraged. Get in line. It was a year when everyone was outraged about something all the time. We will discuss the year in outrage. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, the decision not to release the movie, The Interview. Before we get started, we are seeking an intern for the GabFest. Max is leaving very soon. We are almost closed our intern application process, but we still would like to hear from you. You have a few more days. If you get it to us by December 23rd, get us a resume and a cover letter and a pitch for a topic that we could discuss on the GabFest. Limit yourself to 200 words or less when you tell us what that topic should be. And you can email us at gabfest at slate.com. It's a great job. It's a paid internship. It's a real stepping stone, although you'll be in Max's long shadow. So, So that's a hard place to be. President Obama and Raul Castro announced this week that thanks to a deal brokered in part by the Pope, there will be a thaw in U.S.-Cuban relations. We will open an embassy in Havana. We we freed three Cuban spies, maybe more. Cuba released Alan Gross, a U.S. government contractor who's been imprisoned in Cuba for five years, and will also release dozens of political prisoners. There will be freer travel to Cuba, more remittances permitted. The sanctions on Cuba were not lifted. Only Congress can do that. We are joined by our regular guest on All Matters Foreign, All Matters Dictatorial, Will Dobson, who is Slate's political and foreign editor, and of course the author of the fabulous book, The Dictator's Learning Curve. Hello, Will. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. So why did we make this deal now? I mean, there's two sides to that. On the one hand, on the U.S. side, 
it's not as though there was some foreign policy commission that just got together and said, guess what? This isn't working. I mean, we've always known, we've known for a long time that our posture towards Cuba wasn't producing any results, that it, you know, the policy has been a failure. This has been sort of conventional wisdom. It's hard to find anyone who knows anything about foreign policy who's going to tell you otherwise. Um, so on the U.S. side, what's really changed is the political calculation. You know, the politics allows for this right now uh, from the point of view of a president who won the Cuban vote, who knows that a majority of Americans supports this change, a majority of Cubans supports this change, and is now in the lame duck uh, period of his presidency, unencumbered from being able to do things just like this. You know, this policy never would have lasted this long if Cubans had somehow not settled in Florida and chosen um, wintry Vermont or Rhode, Rhode Island. Uh, this policy would have ended a long time ago, but it had something to do with those electoral votes in Florida. And so it's taken an alignment of factors on our side of the equation politically for this to happen. On the Cuban side, uh, it's actually a lot more interesting. And um, the Cuban side... Fidel's final masterstroke was after the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was really had been an economic lifeline uh, for this tropical dictatorship. Uh, he grafted the Cuban state effectively onto the oil giant that is Venezuela, which was largely based on his personal relationship with Hugo Chavez. The Cubans have gone to great lengths. They have as many as 5,000 political advisors in the Venezuelan government. Maduro, the current president of Venezuela, is someone who was in part selected by the Cubans. They supported his leftist credentials and they, they had groomed him as well as an alternative to Chavez. So this has been an investment on the part of Cuba. Cuban dissidents refer to Venezuelan oil as Cuba's Viagra. Uh, they, pro <laughs> they provide about 80 to 100,000 barrels at cut rate prices. They give Cuba so much oil that they are actually able to take about 40% of it and resell it on the open market as an additional revenue source. So this is what's kept this really failed experiment afloat. Now, with Venezuela effectively becoming a failed state, that creates an economic incentive on the part of the Cubans to try something different and to open up relations. Politically, and this is going to come as a shock to you, at some point, Cuba will not be ruled by a Castro. That does shock that, me. That's going to happen at some point. And in fact, he's, you know, Raul Castro, has, has, the, uh, brother. the brother who's in charge at 83, has said that he's stepping down in, in 2018. He's picked his successor, uh, who is a sprightly 53-year-old technocrat, and he's preparing for that day. And so you've seen a number of things happening in, in Cuba recently in terms of normalizing politics, term limits, age caps for future Cuban leaders, because there can never be another Castro. John. On the U.S. politics of this, this has been not quite untouchable, but largely untouchable issue because of the power of a Cuban voting and donating base. Is it your sense that Republicans will tie themselves to the mast on this issue or that it's just, you know, a few Cubans or a few Cuban-American politicians are going to complain and, and shout about it, that, but that really even the Republicans don't see this as being worthwhile to make a big stink about it? Or somewhere in between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's somewhere in between. I think the first thing we have to do is to talk about just quickly, the briefly, the changing politics of um, Cuba because it gets it allows me to talk about those Puerto Ricans in Orlando that um, that you uh, love when if, I. Talk are you going to say the I four corridor? No, no, no. We don't need to say the <laughs> I four. We just at one end of the I four corridor. Um, the landscape that has changed in terms of the Cuban vote is two things. One, younger Cubans of you know second and third generation from those who actually lived under Castro are less tied to this U.S. policy. And 
you know, there are lots of other minorities like those Puerto Ricans in, in Orlando who are voting and voting for Democrats. So the youngers are, younger ones are voting, younger Cubans are voting for Democrats, and then the minority population has changed in Florida such that the politics there aren't as um, dominated by, by Cubans. So now, all of that having been said, there are a lot of reasons for Republicans to make noise about this. And they are a couple. There are parochial reasons. Marco Rubio is now under some pressure because Jeb Bush, his mentor, has decided that he's going to run for president. And that puts Rubio in a position where all of the people he's trying to raise money from are saying, Marco who? And so now he's got an opportunity to go into the Senate where he can get a microphone in front of him, although they're, they are uh, in recess sine die until uh, the 6th of, uh, of January. Die. That's what they call it when they go into oh. uh, into recess at the end of a session, at the end of the 113th Congress. But, you know, he can fulminate about this and get himself in the, in the papers. It's like a big deal for him. Also, Republicans think this is bad foreign policy because they think Castro is a cruel dictator who punished prisoners who tried to support democracy. And then also it allows them to make a broader claim about President Obama's foreign policy blundering, which they're happy to do at any time. So... It cannot be as politically powerful as it once was, but there can still be many reasons why Republicans would want to make something of this. Will they be able to continue making something of it all the way through to 2016? We can talk about that and some other elements of the politics. What are the, I get to ask a question, David. What are the good <laughs> things, Will, that are going to come of this for Cubans and then maybe for people in the U.S. too? I guess people with Cuban relatives. Obviously. Right. Well, there'll be a lot of things. I mean, first of all, there'll be travel between the two countries. There'll, there'll be more currency floating into the country. There'll be, I mean, this is even without opening up the embargo. This is just even on the diplomatic front. It's not going to be changing a great deal, but it's opening up the number of people that can travel back and forth, which is going to bring more hard currency. You know, it'll buttress the economic reforms that have already been put into place there, which are limited and small scale, but there. It, it's the beginning of a liberalizing process. Uh, and so you can expect a number of things. Indeed, if, it's, if it is the precursor to actually beginning to lift the embargo, then it could be revolutionary. Is it the precursor to lifting the embargo, though? Is there is there any chance the embargo gets lifted because Congress has to do it. Will this Congress lift the embargo? What do you think, John? Well, it depends. Since Republicans control Congress and they want to beat up the president using this to talk about his foreign policy, I think the I think it would be tough. You also have Democratic Senator Menendez, the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, very much against this. So I, I think, think it might not. Right. So so this Congress doesn't do it. But what if this is like an opening and it helps a little bit let Cuba continue to open up its economy? Maybe they get some more Internet down there. It was so crazy to me. I mean, of course, they don't really have lots of fast get, high Wi-Fi, I guess. But, I mean, they have really ostensibly, it sounds like, no free internet. Right. Get some so, more internet. Guys. All I'm those really things. shocked that no one listens to us down there. <laughs> I know. It's really. About that. <laughs> I wonder, could we find out if anyone there has ever, could we? Sure, we <laughs> sure. can all right, Here's right our now. call. <laughs> Are you a Cuban listener to the Gap Fest? Back channel away. Send a courier. <laughs> yeah. Snail mail. Exactly. We accept it. <laughs> right. It's yeah. So anyway, that that over time, this is the end of the policy. And in this particular moment in which Obama can't win anything with this Republican Congress, no, the embargo stays in place. But in three or four or five years, as this thaw continues, of course, the embargo goes away because it was counterproductive. So Obama appears to be in the kind of hell with it stage of his presidency, <laughs> which really is going to be fun to watch. Long. It's going to last for a while. I, what do you guys think? I'm not sure. Well, what do you guys think? That we could expect. What are the other areas which where there's like really messed up lo- things of long standing or particular things that he cares about where where he can 
in mass executive masterstroke make a change. I mean, he could designate national parks left and right, for example. He could. Well, I mean, EPA regs are the big thing. Yeah, well, that, that is coming. Clean air. What are the other things? Sentencing reform. That's an executive action. Yeah, there's a U.S. Sentencing Commission. I mean, you can't lift the mandatory minimums without Congress, but they have all kinds of prosecutorial discretion about how they charge. He, Holder did a little bit of this, but they could certainly expand it. He could also pardon a whole lot more people, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But he probably wouldn't do that until the end. No, that would be the end. Uh, what do you think, Will? On the foreign policy front, this was the big thing to do. I mean, and I agree with what Emily said, that this is the precursor to ending the embargo. This was the first necessary step. And, you know, and the other thing that this does right away, too, just is that it makes it harder for the Cuban. The Cuban government effectively has functioned and has benefited from this policy because it can blame everything that goes wrong in Cuba on the United States. It's a government that needs a rival. And you begin to take that away. You're, you're forcing the Cuban government to stand on its own two feet, which it may not be able to do. The other big thing the president might do on his own is Iran. Right. right. Wouldn't, wouldn't he try? Well, isn't that right, Will? Can well, he, I mean, he can make the agreement. He can't make a treaty, though. Yeah, he, he can't, can't make, make a treaty. No, he can't make a non-binding agreement. I mean, he, he's trying to buy time as much as possible to get an, an agreement that, that could pass. And I think that's going to be very, very hard to do. Right. Yeah. So it would, so he wouldn't, so he couldn't do anything that would be substantive without but could he back off of the what's going to pass and do some half measure that he can do unilaterally? I mean, he can begin. He can ease the sanctions that are in place, and they've done some of that already, and they could go further in that direction. But actually, having you know what he wants in a treaty, I think that's going to be. I can't see how you're going to get that out of this out of this Congress. So should we all go to Cuba? Should we take a trip? I want to go to Cuba. I mean, don't you think we kind of should go quickly before it completely changes? Because part of the point of going to Cuba was that it was so different and foreign. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and you could have gone already as journalists, but... Yes. But, uh, I'm mad. I had a chance years ago, and for some reason I didn't. And now it seems, of course, to have been a wasted opportunity. One final question just to pander to Emily. Is there any chance that this opening has any implications for the treaty at Gitmo? So the Gitmo is a law. It's a we have some kind of I can't remember if it's treaty or some infinite lease there. Lease on that land. Does this have any implications or potential implications for that land? Are you talking to me? I thought you I'm were talking to anybody. Will I'm looking at Will, but that's because you're. In I don't New York. think it was. <laughs> I thought I don't you were sucking up to Emma. I'm excited that you think that's possible, but I don't think so because I don't think what we do with Guantanamo has anything to do really with Cuba. We like. You know, we brushed Cuba out of the Gitmo picture a long time ago. But, Will, what Yeah, do you no, think? I agree. I don't see any, I mean, you know, this is a policy in one place and another place that happen to be close together. But I don't think that anything beyond the geography, you know, there's no, there's no policy uh, spillover here, I think, between one influencing the other. Gitmo is a separate problem, which they're very, very slowly trying to unwind. And, and, and it may be that well. the end of Hegel's regime as defense secretary is the best move toward closing Guantanamo because they're finally really some prisoners again. We shall see. All right. Will Dobson, The Dictator's Learning Curve. It's a great book. Go read it. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. The GabFest is sponsored this week by Stamps.com. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. The traffic, the parking, packed with everyone mailing holiday gifts and packages. I was walking down the street yesterday, and I overheard a woman saying, the post office is so stressful. And it is. And you can use Stamps.com. Instead, with Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. Everything you do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. 
You can print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it, and then your mail carrier picks it up. It's easy and convenient. And right now, we have a special offer when you use our promo code GABFEST. It's a no-risk trial, a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Jeb Bush kind of, sort of announced something this week. What was it, John? He announced that he is actively going to think about having an exploratory committee. He's going to form a PAC. He's raising money. To have, well, he's, yeah, he's going to form a PAC to raise money and do all of the things that you need to do to begin a presidential campaign. Um, and he's trying to shove other contenders for his fundraisers out of the way. Right. Well, or yeah. find out he's too unpopular among the base to ever, ever win. Right. No. Uh, so, okay, so. <laughs> Emily's jumped ahead. Are you of the trying story. to jump, jump ahead and condense the whole topic into like thirty five seconds? I was like trying to see if John seconds. thought I was right. Will yeah. gave me a big pat on the here. head. Yeah. yeah, Will gave me a pat on the head in the last segment. I've gotten over eager. I'll now shut up. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was just trying to like. So what he's formally done there, you know, the presidential announcement has now turned into like a seven stage thing. You know, like so your book that you release is part of your announcement even though you're not officially announcing. Then you can announce that you're going to go on a listening tour. Then you can form an exploratory committee. Then you can announce that you're going to announce and then you finally announce and then you file paper. There just there's become so many different ways to try and get the publicity that comes from people because there's an old line in politics that say you're you're um your best day is the day before you announce. Uh, and that seems to have been translated into trying to recapture the glory of that best day by trying to announce seven times, but it doesn't work that way. But Emily is right in everything she said, which is that this is an expedited launch. Um, what was happening was his his narrative, which matters because he's trying to raise money and narrative matters to people who are writing checks, had gotten away from him. Everybody was writing like, is he going to run? Is he not going to run? And, and uh, Business Week ran a story about whether he had a private equity problem. And all the stories that were about him were ones that he had no control over. So he decided to recapture his identity and did two things. He said that he was going to release 250,000 emails from when he from his two terms as governor of Florida, uh, which is we can talk about. And then he said, I'm going to announce, I'm going to, you know, do, go through this exploratory phase. And so now everybody's talking about his coming campaign and all the elements of it and not these other stories that were around. And what he's also done is throw a roadblock in front of the forces who were trying to get Mitt Romney to run, who were spending a lot of their time running down Jeb Bush as a way to uh, prepare the way and prepare for a Romney candidacy, which would be attractive to the same kind of donors in the party who are who are your kind of what we would call establishment for lack of a more precise term. It doesn't seem to have struck fear in the hearts of the rest of the potential candidates, the fact that Jeb has come in. It's been the whole thing seems to have been greeted with a bit more of a yawn than I would have expected. It's not as though Christie is now like trembling or you know, Scott Walker has given it all up and is moving to an ashram. But how do you know that? I mean, they have to all say, oh, we're making our decision based on our own, you know, convictions and factors. And Christie didn't make any comment at all, did he? Did I miss he, it? He didn't. And in talking to those who are working for him, their response was, well, we'll see how it all kind of plays out. I'm trying to think of the last time there was a candidate who, who – cleared the field. Hillary I mean, Clinton? I, well, I was going to say, uh, <laughs> yeah, let me finish. Obviously, that's, <laughs> Sorry, obviously that's what, um, but Hil there was no field to clear with her. I mean, 
Do you know what she I mean? She pre-cleared There's, it. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like, you know, when George Bush, George W. Bush finally got in the race, two-term uh, Texas governor, there was still lots of competition, although he was, you know, considered formidable. But there were still lots of issues. And uh, so it's hard to kind of show up out of nowhere. Colin Powell might have been able to do it in 1986 if he'd run instead of Bob Dole. But 96. So uh, what did I say? 86? Sorry, 96. Um, I mean, he's got a lot of challenges as a candidate, which is the other reason there wasn't that huge response. But even if he didn't have those challenges, I still don't think you would have had a huge quailing among the people who are running. But I think it has changed things for Mitt Romney, and it's probably changed things for a few other people who are noodling it. Paul Ryan probably wasn't going to run, but he's a fan of Jeb Bush's, so that changes his his thinking. And, and Marco Rubio has to kind of reconsider what he's thinking about doing. I think it's really, I'm glad that he entered the race. He seems, in terms of his views on the issues and his positioning, to be really interesting. I cannot believe we could have three Bushes be Republican nominees for the president. We I just, might even have a whole hedge. It, it makes me, yes. I actually, it like, makes me tremble for our democracy, the idea that we would have a Bush-Clinton race, that that's even possible, that we, we're becoming dynastic. It's crazy. Well, I mean, certainly the the Adams family was, uh, you know, we had the Adams, Adams family. With we had Roosevelt's, too. we had Kennedy's. Yeah, and the Roosevelt's and Kennedy's. But I still, like, associate myself with your point, which is... Unlike David. But <clears throat> Jeb Bush, is, there is no chance, zero chance, that Jeb Bush will get the Republican nomination. Okay, let's, make the case. I want to hear why uh, not. Let's walk through this, yeah. Some of it is positional, which is that he occupies positions on immigration, which is the hottest issue among the Republican base right now. His, his position on immigration is very hard to hold. Now, I know there's this theory, oh, Obama has distracted everyone from the positions that Republicans hold. But but Bush is really nodded to his immigration position. That's problematic. His common core position is problematic for the kind of people who vote in primaries because for some reason they're, again, agitated Republicans are really upset about common core. But setting aside that, he's just not an impressive he's, – he's obviously smart. He was a pretty good governor of Florida. He hasn't run a race – in how many years? Ten years? He's like the opposite of fiery. He is. Well, yeah, he, he, yeah. He's going up against people who want it, who are much pushier, much more aggressive, who understand new media better, who understand the dynamics of the Internet and the digital age and how to use it much better, who don't have the name Bush. It just seems to me, you know, beyond beyond risible, the idea that he could win. I, I don't think he has a moment where he leads this field once the voting actually starts, or once it ser- gets serious. I just don't see it at all. It was funny to read uh, somewhere today that, where they called him the front runner, which is which <laughs> When is there's silly. only one. Well, I mean, well, also to the extent that, he, uh, that he's a front runner in any poll, it's like he's a front runner with 12. Also, right. he, has a, I mean, he has a weird thing with his wife. Like, that's yes. all going to come out. You know, they don't, well, they may not live together. I don't, I mean, it's all mysterious. No, but also I, she has some, well, I shouldn't go talking uh, smack about th- her, but yeah. I, I think that you, you don't have to go to the family to outline his challenges, and David's done most of them. I think in addition to immigration, and, and if you pick three issues, on which the Republican base gets really, really excited. <laughs> Education and immigration are at the top of the list. And the other one advised for that uh, top spot is taxes. And he has said in a number of instances, both with respect to his father's decision to raise taxes, which he called the most bravest thing that a modern president has done. And then also... That might be true, actually, or at least it's in the top five. And then also uh, saying that in the last campaign, when uh, Republicans were saying they wouldn't take a budget deal where you had $10 in spending reductions for $1 in tax increase, he said, I would take that deal. And that got him in trouble with the tax cutters in the Republican Party. So 
the third other issue that he has trouble on is that. And then I think just to your point, David, about not having run in 12 years, politics has changed a lot. It's gotten a lot uglier and meaner. And he is a very loyal person and family member to both his father and his brother. And if you want to make him angry, and there will come a time when a lot of his opponents will want to, you can tweak him on his brother and father. And he has a he, he doesn't roll with the punches. It's going to be a slog. And is he ready for a... Um, for a big, ugly slog like that. Do you think that he got in early to see if he really wants to stay in? That, in other words, this could be a very brief candidacy in which all he really does is box out Mitt Romney? I think there's one of, if he's true to what he says, there's there's a lot that's laudable in what he's trying to do here, which is he's saying, I'm going to try and run a campaign differently. Now, candidates always say that. They come out and they say, I'm going to be a truth teller. And then they don't tell a truth that is any more abrasive than you know a facial tissue. And then they go around to I, mean, I love, I love Dickerson metaphors like that. that I right. know, that's so the nice. best. He just like that rolled back. excellent. He didn't have you to, just, there was like, no thinking. Made that up. Like, boom. <laughs> Facial tissue. I never make a single good simile or metaphor like in my life, and you do it regularly. You are, you are so sweet. Um, that's true. You know, Barack Obama used to do that all the time. He would talk about, like, how he was going to tell people hard truths, and he never said anything that was hard truths. He pointed to this one speech he gave about emissions in Detroit in which he said the room was really grumbling. And I went back and looked at the account of the speech. They gave him a standing ovation. Anyway. It was a grumbling standing yeah. ovation, John. So, and Tim Pawlenty. There was a frown in the room. Tim Pawlenty used to do this. Anyway, it's a trope. But what if he does it for real? Which is, like, he runs a campaign in which he tells some truths about the party. And, and um, well, he kind of has to to defend well, his own exactly, position. <laughs> he can't run from his old he can't run from his old positions i mean there is a way in which um so anyway if he does that it'll be really interesting releasing 250,000 emails is a kind of planned candor that we never see in presidential races which have become a race to say things that leave no impression in the brain once they've gone through them because candidates are so terrified of being taken out of context in our super hyper-fast presidential campaign news cycles. So to do that, 250,000 emails, they may be really boring, but they're an an insight that we never get that kind of insight. So if he's going to run that kind of campaign, we should... Republican or Democrat kind of laud him for trying to do it differently and do something that might give us an idea of what kind of a person he is. It may also doom him right on the launch pad because, uh, you know, there may be things that he tries to do that he thinks are innovative and creative and that the electorate looks at and just thinks this guy's bonkers. Can all whatever 16 of the potential candidates run, John? How many are going to get in? Great question. Such a great question. So there are like nine to 14 possible people who could be rumbling around. And you would say, on the one hand, why do you want to run? If you really want to be president, you really, really, really want to be president. You got to raise a whole bunch of money. You got to ruin your family, ruin your life for like two years. What if, though, you want to run a message campaign and you also think like, yeah, I'd like to be president. I'm going to run really hard, but I'm going to, you know, be realistic about it. You might not have to raise as much money, in which case... You could kind of hang out and participate in it and, and, you know. Be there in case everyone else self-destructed. That's right. Be there in that instance or run kind of like Rick Santorum did, which is a real message campaign where you say what you believe, you spread the word, and you don't have to spend a lot of money. How many could run big, you know, $150 million campaigns? Not that many. You know, Christie, Bush, Perry, maybe Walker. But isn't there a premise that, you know, if you're – Ted Cruz and you catch fire, you do it? Or you're Rand Paul and yeah. you catch fire, you can well, do it? Well, I guess. That was the old premise. And the premises are changing in the way um, – and you're right. Cruz and, and Paul have lower – they don't have to raise as much money because they can live off the land as they say. And also what's different is you know, Santorum didn't have much money, lived off the land. But he also had a really nice, rich friend in Foster Freeze who kind of 
was out there spending money on his behalf so that he could catch on. And there were also – in the superback world, you can live a lot longer than in the past because you've got a huge single donor pack out there that's going to keep you alive by beating the dickens out of the other guy or you know just generally – providing you with what you need, which is money. Usually these candidates run, lose, drop out of the race because they run out of money. And so there's a way now that you could stay in the race without having a lot of money. And you're right, David, a, a character like Ted Cruz, who has a lot of support and also has the constant foil of the Republican leaders in the Senate that he can work against. You know, every time he pumps that bellows, he gets a lot of money and notoriety for fighting the establishment and taking on Barack Obama. And that's powerful. And so that diminishes the amount of money you would need if you were kind of a more complicated candidate with, you know, who didn't have that sort of super activist support. Okay. When Jeb Bush is our president, I will, I will eat uh, my words. Can I say one other thing that will be interesting to watch and manage just for people? If it's really interesting to watch and manage. Well, well, only for me, but I like to hear myself talk for people looking for a TV guide about watching the Bush campaign. There's probably no larger political dynasty in America right now than the Bushes. And there are a lot of different members of the Bush clan. And some are friends of George Bush. Some are George W. Bush. Some are friends of George H.W. Bush. And some are friends of Jeb Bush. And the Venn diagram, you know, overlaps in places. But there are lots of huge sections that is different. And so you'll start to read stories or see tweets or something and say it's like a Bush family friend says the following. It's very possible that that person can be a lifelong enemy of people involved in the Jeb camp or or somebody who doesn't like Jeb Bush at all. And I am so glad I'm not in that family. That is super complicated. Well, it, it's not. It, the family itself is pretty tight-knit, and so you wouldn't get bashing within the family. But it's somebody who might have worked for W might, you know, I mean, a whole a bunch of people worked for W, and they're going to scatter out through the other campaigns. Anyway, there will be instances in which the campaign has to manage people who speak to the press as friends of Bush or advisors to Bush who really shouldn't be able to claim that title. And this is – Hillary Clinton has this problem too, I was going to say the Clintons too. Yeah. So just the, the swirl – managing that giant hairball is going to be uh, – is going to be a real challenge for whoever runs the Bush campaign. And if they're trying to run this quote-unquote innovative campaign, there will be lots of instances where they do something that is called quote-unquote innovative and where there are going to be a lot of people sitting on the sideline going, eh, not sure that's so great. And then there will be reporters writing it all down and they'll have to manage that. So that'll be a way to kind of read between the lines and all these Jeb Bush stories over the next year or so. Slate is on a quest to identify the top technological marvels of the contemporary age, the seven wonders of the modern world. Unlike the architectural monuments of antiquity, the great achievements of today are made possible by systems, infrastructure, and technologies that are, for the most part, invisible. To find out more, go to slate.com slash seven wonders and check back every week for a new wonder of the modern world. The series was made possible by GE. Slate is outraged this week. It's outraged most weeks, but it's really outraged this week. Or maybe it's fair to say that you're you, America, is out, are outraged and Slate is channeling that outrage. Slate spent the last year collecting daily example of outrage, of taking umbrage, of taking offense. There's a huge package up on Slate, including an amazing interactive, which has every single day of the year and what was the outrage that day. We are joined by the queen of outrage herself. <laughs> Slate's editor-in-chief, Julia Turner. Julia's really not the queen of outrage. She, she will be. She will be today. She's like the queen why, of yeah. even Julia, keel. Julia, what has shocked your conscience today? <laughs> uh, 
Um, you calling me the queen of outrage. What the hell? Would any self-respecting queen of outrage subject outrage to as much scrutiny as we tried to in this package? I don't think so. <laughs> well said. Why, so why did, why did uh, Slate decide to collect daily outrage? What, was, what prompted this gathering? It was the brilliant idea of one of our editors, Allison Benedict. But as soon as she proposed it, it immediately made sense to all of us because this is the water we swim in. I think all of us who work in journalism, particularly journalism on the web, and more broadly, people who read the news or care about the news or spend time on social media or in any way interact with the way we process new information in our culture right now is familiar with this cycle. Something happens, people get outraged about it, people get outraged about the outrage, there's infighting, there's outfighting, there's sarcasm, there's disdain for the whole enterprise. Uh, there's an apology, there's not an apology, there's a defensive apology, then there's people uh, objecting to the apology. It happens, it feels like, every day. And so we decided to find out, does it really happen every day? And in fact, it does. And sometimes the outrageous things truly spark ire, woe, and sadness at the injustice of the world. And sometimes they kind of make you roll your eyes. And we've had so much fun going back through these. It's a it's a kind of skewed memory lane for the year. John, why is this the prime emotion of the internet? You, you John Dickerson, are somebody who, who have been aware of this tendency in internet life to be outraged, to take offense, to be, to be wounded, and to get on one's high horse about it. Why why is that a f key feature of our digital life? Well, it's a great question, and, and I think it's probably a complex answer. I think one of the reasons is as somebody who only rarely writes pieces of outrage and recognizes the page views those get relative to the pieces that say, on the one hand, on the other hand, there is no click benefit to being elvish. There is click benefit to being an orc. <laughs> there is a click benefit to being like outraged and just go to 11. Um, so the economic model encourages that kind of behavior. I think also that we saw it in politics. You know, we um, did you edit the piece, David, in 2008, where we uh, where we wrote that Umbridge was the, the you hottest. wrote it, John. Well, I know, I, I know, but I, I, I hope David edited it. But maybe not. <laughs> maybe it was Newman. But um, in politics, the thing you do when you want to make up a story is you just – what's it called, David, in, in soccer when you fall down and you haven't really been run into? Simulation. No, there's a dive. Flopping. 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 flopping Simulation. <laughs> what kind of soccer fan are you even? Uh, I knew that. I put the big well, one. I have coverage at your a, lack I, of soccer I, knowledge. I, I am outraged. I put the big one up there for you, David. And, and <laughs> you blew it. And you answered it like Simulation is faint. Oh, whatever. Fine. Uh, <laughs> <go ahead. laughs> um, anyway, but with the falling down at perceived slights um, and using that for political game became a big part of the 2008 campaign. And then we saw it uh, used most, um, I don't know if effectively is the word I want, but um, when Hillary Rosen, not affiliated with the Obama campaign, said that basically Ann Romney hadn't had a real job. And she then went on to Twitter and said, you know, raising – I forget what, exactly what she said, but she's basically being a mom is a real job. And then Republicans went on like a week-long umbrage fest uh, that they were joined by David Axelrod and Jim Messina, the two people who did work for the Obama campaign, taking umbrage on Ann Romney's behalf. Um, and that, But we see that like every day in politics where somebody is, is offended. So I, I haven't been listening because I just want to point out that diving or flopping – quote, officially known as simulation, 
Yeah, and who calls it that? Officially, people no, who are actual people who are called. actual soccer fans. Oh, I see. Okay, club of one. <laughs> I well, but no, this is a classic else. outrage example. But just before we get to it, which is one thing that we discovered in putting this package together was that outrage is often about policing of boundaries Language. and in-groups and out-groups, right? So, privilege, your soccer privilege. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's soccer privilege, but it is isn't. It is because so much of it is on social media, uh, it is often about what people are saying and how they say it, and it gets further removed from what people are doing. And that is a way in which what John was talking about a minute ago in terms of politics now applies like to all of us, right? There are endless opportunities for outrage. If you take the right ones, you find your people. Everyone cheers you on. You feel like you you were right first that day or second. And if you say the wrong thing too loudly, you're really sorry afterward because you kind of you know, had this big trumpet and you thought you were being clever or witty, but actually, like, it's your downfall. Can I jump in back to David's question? Another reason that this happens is that we communicate now in 140 characters on Twitter, and it's almost impossible not to say the wrong thing for some audience, some portion of the audience that reads what you say, if it's on a topic that it is at all Controversial. And you're not edited. And so writers who usually rely on their editors to temper their bad impulses are on their own. I mean, the Andrew Goldman essay that Slate ran for me was like heart stopping to read. It's about his own um, self-described downfall on Twitter on a Sunday morning driving up I-91 with his kids to go apple picking. And it just reminds you once again what the really destructive power of that medium is. Although in that case, it feels like we would all agree that what he said was was wrong. It's oh, yeah. destructive. I guess my point is you can say something that is not so obviously wrong, but somebody somewhere will – because you're only communicating in 140 characters, they won't give you the benefit of the doubt that's, that's almost required to read 140 characters. And if they don't give you the benefit of the doubt, you're screwed even if you write something that's – relatively innocuous or that most people would think is innocuous. Right. I mean I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot these essays deeply affected me in terms of podcasting. Now, we're not speaking in 140-character bites, but we, in order for these shows to work, we have to be able to play out loud with ideas and kind of think out loud. I said something dumb last week and wrong and ill-put about Jackie, the girl who's the claiming of having been gang-raped person in the UVA Rolling Stone story. And what I meant to say essentially was like, it's still possible that she did not fabricate this story entirely. What I said instead earned me three or four very umbrage-taking emails. And it made me feel like, well, wait a second, guys, this is like my world in which don't I get the benefit of the doubt, at least from GabFest listeners when I say something inept? But in fact, you can never count on that. And so how do you deal with that as someone who's out there as a journalist, especially a journalist who's talking? Because this is our unedited. I, do you expression. guys remember that great episode? It must have been five or six years ago now when I said, <laughs> what, why John, are you laughing? knows what yes. you're talking about, the but day, I don't. What? Eric Cantor, when you wanted to go after Eric Cantor no. with, like a, with a hatchet or something? Oh, oh well, no, it was, yeah. what it was, that, that was a good one. No, I said something about how I didn't understand why 
why it was that people hadn't gone after Wall Street with pitchforks and flaming oh, torches. Right, right, and then right. Fox Fox like ran me as a, on the ticker on the crawl. It was like right, uh, exactly. it was, editor plots yeah. attack <laughs> attacking attack Wall, on Wall populist Street. attack on Wall Street. It was awesome. I loved it so much. Well you have an incredibly thick skin, David. I mean I think probably the thickest skin of any of us. And I'm so we're talking about this as like sensitive journos in in the booth. Like Right. Like, I of course felt terrible all week that I had said something so dumb. But I'm curious for your take on it, David. You've been you've been kicking it to us for a bit. What's what's your perspective on this? I, I don't have anything interesting to say. I I was trying I was sitting and trying to think like are there any occasions when I really like genuinely take offense and feel like taking the moral high ground and I just don't think I do it that much. So it's not something I tune. I find it all so pointless and boring and stupid the the entire culture of umbrage taking and taking offense and everyone's quest to be a victim and yet you really unseemly. like to argue so when you see other people but making to me what it's like just- so much the game right it's like playful it's like it's not with stakes and it's not and also i'm rarely do i attribute bad motives to people i'm arguing with or talking about it's like that doesn't seem to me to be it's not that useful so I, but I don't. I guess I just don't have anything. I don't have anything interesting to say. Although it is, it is astonishing when you look at that interactive to realize, my God, it really, it was true that every single day of this year, there's at least one episode where people just feel the need to rise self righteously. And I think it's part of it. You know, must be that um, there's such a community reward for it, not just in page views if you're a digital journalist, but in the actual sense yeah, of psychic right approval on. you get mm-hmm. from people and you you know people you re- so rarely get approval for anything you do in life that to, to get that must be gratifying so people go back to it like an opiate i mean i think one thing that's interesting here is we keep coming back to talking about this through the lens of being journalists but part of what's happening here is that social media makes it so that journalists are talking to activists are talking to avid news readers are talking to politicians and whatever random celebrities are on Twitter, and, and that basically seems like it's the Twitter audience, right? And and like a bunch of lawyers who follow the news, and and <laughs> no doctors because they're seeing their patients. They're too busy; they don't have time for Twitter. Teachers have to teach their children. Yeah, anybody who's really doing good for the world is not on Twitter, uh, and the rest of us are all talking about it. And and I think that's confusing. Like fundamentally, for most journalists, the instinctive like there's a reason that we become journalists and not activists. Like there's an instinctive remove, there's an instinctive skepticism, there's an instinctive like. Let's not be hotheads now moment for for at least for a swath of journalists that tends to be the cut of the jib. Right. But suddenly we're working in this environment. And actually, David, I'm wondering if you feel like the environment changed over your six years as editor. But we're currently working in an environment where the prevailing conditions are that these tempests keep sweeping through. And slowly we're realizing like, huh, you know, if I write an essay this way, like this will catch fire and I'll get people reading it and I'll get the set of activists who care about this issue to feel like I've really captured something and I'm making change in the world and I'm like, you know, socking it to those bad guys. And it's it's just a confluence of forces. Whereas I think maybe five or 10 or 15 years ago, those worlds were just more separate. You didn't immediately feel like you were talking to those people. Well, it's that instant gratification. So you get the immediate feedback immediately or retweeted. Right. And favored. By your by your tribe. I mean, you're basically all at a rally that you don't physically have to go to. And so, you know, the, the roar that, that builds up over right. time of a rally full of people who all believe the same thing is they all top each other in saying affirming things 
that they all can get excited about, and that now happens on Twitter or on Facebook, and then it gets exempl- it gets amplified by the partisan media or the ideological media, uh, which then feeds back into the initial loop. So you know the. Twitter gets angry and then it shows up on MSNBC and then they pass around the MSNBC clip that everybody can get angry about or and on both sides. And they just kind of keep kind of um, working the same gap in their teeth and just keep worrying it because that's kind of like it's affirming to their underlying beliefs. It gets it's like it's like being a sports fan. Are we trivializing this too much? Because one characterization of what you just said so. is that we're all just Probably. wasting our time, right? Constantly. There's just this regurgitating, reflexive set of storms that are bursting and they're meaningless. Right. And another one is like, this is a democratizing way of influencing change in the world. And but, I mean, one of the things that was really interesting to me going through this calendar was like, how many, first of all, did I even know about most of these, yeah. many of these incidents? No, I did not. Second of all, if I did know, did I think it was worth any level of outrage whatsoever? Like, which was, where was the moment where I thought, oh, I really should have written well, about that, as but, opposed to like, oh, it's a good thing that I let that you're, go. You're answering your own question. If the, if the list had made you think, well, these are all genuine outrages, then then you would think, well, no, this is a democratizing beneficial force. But when you look at it, you think, geez, we're outraged about everything, so we're outraged about nothing. But some of them were genuine outrages, and how right, do you my, know in advance? Like, oh, because you know. You, you do. know. You and always also, know? You well, feel like I think you can you always know, trust your instincts? Well, I think you know if you follow like the normal rules of polite society and the ones that Julia was mentioning earlier for journalists, which is take a breath think maybe there are two sides to this or what we've learned from human behavior, which is when you hear something somebody's done, it's almost always true that when you talk to them or hear their side of the story, that it becomes more complex. But in this conversation, in the outrage culture, you never, you don't you never get to their side of the story. You just jump right into the worst characterization. And this goes to David's good point about motive, uh, you know, leaping at their motive. You you ascribe some horrible motive to them, which then makes whatever they're doing seem venal, and you're off to the races. And yet sometimes, much as I hate to admit it because I don't like this, that is the best sure. vehicle for change. And all the complexity just gets in the way. And all the co- so often with issues I care about, the oversimplifies version is the one that gets people to actually take action. It drives me crazy. Sure, but... but I'm outraged about that. <laughs> but, but, but that's when something ripens into an outrage as opposed to just, again, being outraged about everything. I agree with what you're saying, which well, is like, you, like, if you slam your fist on the table about something, people are going to pay attention. But then you, there is the crying wolf problem, which is if you're always slamming your fist... Well, and I think if you look at the world this year, one question I have about this interactive is, are we describing a problem with how the world functions or are we describing a problem with how the world feels if you spend a lot of time on the internet? Right. Those are two different things. And I think, you know, if you look at the response to Ferguson and the response to Eric Garner, you're seeing a set of outrage that is being channeled into protests and and a kind of activism. Whether that activism will garner real results remains to be seen. We've seen maybe some progress with body cameras. Like it, it does feel like there is a sense that finally things reached a boiling point and there is a level of distress about the injustices that were witnessed this year that will actually affect some kind of change. And so maybe that means the system is not broken. It just feels broken. But- to a set of, of chattering classes, and maybe that's a smaller problem. But but isn't what isn't the problem you're identifying not that people are outraged because they've always been outraged and there've been marches forever? It's that there are there's a higher level of outrage for lesser crimes more frequently now. 
Right. So that's what seems to be the thing we're putting our finger on. Right. And maybe the era we're in rewards being right occasionally far more than being wrong often. In other words, like the actually crying wolf isn't such a big problem anymore. You cry wolf in a tweet, it just goes by everyone. But also, no, because there's a whole, whole audience you have access to who doesn't think you're crying wolf. They think it's real and legitimate and the wolf is at the door, if I may put two wolves into one (laughs) but because the wolf is always at the door because you live off the handle that you used to have to fly off of we now all live (laughs) off the handle so now you you're not you know you've you've got like a reinforcing audience out there and i wonder to the larger question is this sweeping out into the culture i mean there are people that i've been talking to for my restraint piece people who get off of twitter and facebook because this social network they had, which was their friends and people they went to high school with and old girlfriends, there is the toxicity that comes in from these immediately right to the harshest level debates that kind of come into what used to be polite society or, or you know, not polite society. Invective. Yeah, like oh, pictures of the kids and then right next to the picture of the kids is some like screed about Obama or some horrible screed about the Bushes. And it's like, wait, I wanted to interact with this person because we went to high school together. Now it's like – now Facebook bombarded. has gotten yeah I'm being bombarded with all of this out. I'm in a big so, bad I'm big bad wolfing you guys and I'm blowing blowing your straw hats down. Yeah, good. We, let's no we we should wrap this segment. We oh, uh, but, <laughs> that's fine. And but I'm going to give Julia the last word, which is Julia. What was there one particular outrage that you'd forgotten about that in the memory of it as you looked back in this interactive brought you such joy or horror that we should keep an eye out for it? I just loved the surprise of it. It's just funny to have a look. I mean, usually when at the end of the year you look back on either all the worthy accomplishments or the best albums or the best films or maybe maybe like comic misbehavior. But really to force ourselves to do one for every day meant that some of them were just so bizarre, like the one about the poorly designed uh, New York Times magazine cover of Hillary Clinton's face as a planet or something. Like, I remembered when everybody was sort of exercised about that. Exactly. Um, it, was, it was before Emily Bazelon got there, so we can't hold her accountable for exactly. it. Exactly. Um, Not my fault. But um, it was like, why did anybody care about that? I mean, I, I care about magazine design, and really, like, I don't know. It was fine. It well, kind of looked like an economist cover. I don't even like, It just was... Whatever. I just... It just... It, to me, it was utterly comical. I mean, I think realistically, the other other thing that struck me looking back on it is it is jarring to see things as serious and grave as Ferguson jostling with, um, you know, Hillary's planet head up there. And and to me, that was the, the real reckoning was just understanding that the same mechanism we use to churn through so many different kinds of injustices that do not at all have the same weight. Julia Turner is the editor of Slate. She's the best editor of Slate of 2014. Thanks for coming. (laughs) 2015, maybe. Thanks for having me on, guys. So let's go to Cocktail Chatter. John Dickerson, as you prepare for a Merry Christmas, as you're having eggnog, what are you and the Little Dickersons going to be talking about? Well, mostly with the Little Dickersons, I'll be talking about how their inappropriate behavior over the course of the year is the reason they got a lump of coal in their um, stocking. But... um, no, you know, not that's true. not really environmentally sound, John. I really think you should have put a solar we buy panel offset. in there. We, we buy offsets. 
or Santa buys offsets, I guess. Uh, no, that's not true. They're wonderful children. Okay, so I'm, since we were t- we were talking about outrages today, I wanted to uh, bring up an outrage. I was doing I was doing some investigation into an, uh, um, a former congressman from Iowa, um, H. R. Gross, who was just a great like fulminator on the House floor, and and he will come back into our story sometime later this year uh, for a chatter that I'm doing some research on, which um, hopefully will be worth all the effort. But in the course of doing that, I came across this great Hugh Seide piece in Life magazine from the LBJ years, and it's called The Peck Sniffs Squeeze the Fun from a Joyless Bunch. The resident Washington fuddy-duddies have somehow managed to squeeze a few more drops of gaiety and humor out of the White House, which had only a minuscule supply to start with. They have been fulminating over two innocent happenings. A White House dinner dance that went on until 3 a.m. and the photograph of Press Secretary Bill D. Moyers at the Opera Ball in the Smithsonian Institution doing a loose-jointed, low-crouched gyration variously described as a frug or watusi. These have coalesced the country's blue buds. And then it goes on and reads from these letters written into Congressman H.R. Gross, in which a woman uh, from Chicago writes, hooray for you to the congressman who's been uh, saying what a disaster this is and saying that uh, he labeled um, uh, Moyers. He said Moyers was one of the, quote, twinkle toes that inhabit the White House. You may remember that twinkle toes was a rather loaded for, uh, term back in the 60s. Anyway, you think like thousands of us do, the dancing and fiddling in Washington. It reminds me of the Roman Empire. Now, this may sound like today's umbrage and outrage culture, and indeed it was. The Southern Baptist, Moyer, was in fact an ordained minister, and they were going to award him uh, the Distinguished Commentator of the Year, but they rescinded it based on the photograph of him doing the Watusi. So that was just like, it became like a thing, right? And so then Hugh Seide writes that basically the upshot is that uh, this has been to make the usually joyless White House an even more somber place and how they all have to like button up and can't be seen smiling anymore. But then finally, I'm just going to tell this great, this joke I loved, which is Seide goes on to say, that means there's only one joke left in Washington. And that joke goes as follows. Uh, He says, the best joke that can be rustled up right now, indeed the only joke, has Moyers coming into Johnson's office and dropping exhausted into a chair, saying, quote, my God, what a day. Johnson replies, now, Bill, you've known me long enough, so you don't have to be so formal. Not bad, not bad. So that uh, we, we are not, although we are obsessed with outrages every second of the day, there are, in fact, precedents from the 60s about ridiculous outrage in Washington culture. Top that, Bazelon. Well, my chatter today was sent to me courtesy of John Dickerson. And so guess what? It has some nice numbers in it. All of us who despaired for a long time that Barack Obama was going to appoint such a tiny number of judges that we would barely have even noticed his judicial legacy can take a deep breath and give the president some credit. He has now at a total of 307 federal judges. That's not quite as many as George Bush, but Note that Obama has some time left, although arguably not really, given that the Republicans are taking over Congress. But the the most noteworthy um, thing about this tally, which um, is in an article by Sahil Kapoor, if I'm pronouncing his or her name correctly, more or less, John says in Politico, is that there are 53 Obama appointees on the federal appeals courts. And that means that while Obama came into office and the, there was a Democratic majority on the appeals courts in only one out of 30 
13 of them across the country because these are regional courts. Now the Democrats have more appointees than the Republicans in nine of 13 of those courts. And that's really significant. We, When I was doing an interview during the campaign season with somebody very involved in, in getting Democrats elected and the conversation turned to, you know, what's Obama's legacy going to be if these Democrats don't get elected, which in fact happened. This person said his legacy won't have anything to do with these campaigns. It'll be all the judges he was able to appoint and that can't be taken away. And so the thing that matters about this On the appeals courts, most cases get decided by a panel of three. So the more people you have on your side, presumably, the more like you are to win. But also the hotly contested cases go up to that extra step called en banc, which just basically means that a bigger panel of judges, each circuit has their own rules. It can be six judges. It can be like 13 judges. But anyway, those big cases, these political divisions and balances start to really matter. The most noteworthy example right now is the DC. Circuit, which has shifted over to being um, dominated by Democrats. And, you know, this will change again if there's a Republican elected in 2016, as it should. But Obama has done his part. My chatter. Really, really interesting and, and sad story in The Guardian this week called The Race to Save Peter Kassig. And it's about uh, one of the hostages held by ISIS who was executed in November. But it was about an American lawyer, Stanley Cohen, a radical, radical lawyer who's been at odds with the government. He's represented people in Hamas. He represented Osama bin Laden's son-in-law. He's a he's a radical lawyer who, through a variety of kind of random circumstances, became aware of Kasich's captivity and and was people appealed to him to try to save Kasich. And he went to Kuwait and Jordan in an attempt to get some of the radical clerics, some of the clerics who were advisors or connected to the, the, the theologians who advise ISIS to try to push ISIS to release Kasig. And he made a kind of an incredible effort with the tacit and in some cases explicit support of the FBI, an agency he'd been at odds with his whole life, to get Kasig freed. And it's it's an amazing incredibly sad story and and you know there's all sorts of terrible behavior by the Jordanian government in it there's misunderstandings there's really interesting stuff about the the theology of ISIS and the theology of ISIS opponents it's really worth a read you know we had a show in which Emily said on bonk and I said sign die that's probably really bad. David, what's David, your, what's your pet annoying Latin, Latin phrase sign die by the right uh, by the way means without day why isn't it sine Day. I don't. I think it's pronounced "sine die." I swear. I know that doesn't. I'm sure. I, if I'm pronouncing it wrong, it will be an epic mispronunciation. Well, it's not that you're pronouncing it wrong. It's just that if it was pronounced in Latin, it would be "sine day," wouldn't it be? I, I don't. don't know. I, I, Who knows? I am the last person. Which in the Latin world. scholar can come and correct us? I mean, I could. It, it would be such an epic mispronunciation that that people somewhere, someone is having a, an enormous belly laugh. I don't have any Latin. Deus mio. Carpe diem. Carpe diem. You know Carpe that diem. one. I, I, know, I know a little bit of Latin. Status quo ante. Before the credits, just one more thing. So you should give the gift of Slate Plus to another Slate fan in your life. This, why, who is, that's, what are you that's doing? John, that's John, not me. I am it's, not to blame okay, for that. Okay, I'm wrong. You it's sine, sine die. So I couldn't be wronger. wronger. John is wrong. All right. Sine die. John, as punishment, you have to give the gift of Slate Plus to another Slate fan in your life. This fan will then receive all the benefits of membership. 
exclusive podcasts, bonus podcast segments, single page articles, behind the scenes content, such as the amazing um, video that was made about us watching or us listening to our first episode and being filmed listening to our first episode a few weeks ago. I just watched that short video today. It's very funny. There's, there's no wrapping required. It makes a great last minute gift. Give Slate Plus today. Visit slate.com slash give plus. Our intern is Max Tawney. Our producer is Mike Bolo. Joel Meyer is our new managing producer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. Has lots of links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at slategabfest. Our email address where you should apply for our internship, but do it soon, is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes. Leave a comment and rating while you're there. Search for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. It's our conundrum show, our live conundrum show. It's going to air on uh, Christmas Day, I guess. It's going to be fantastic. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>